Next week is, the Sabbath day is March 27th, okay? And next week, March 27th, what day is that for our church? March 27th, next Sunday. No? Communion, thank you. What we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at some of the opening, basically the opening, what's the matter? Is that better? How about that? Okay. Thank you, Bob. What is it that Christ is trying to teach us? Because you have to look at the surrounding um, events that are happening. And I think that there's a lesson about communion that I think it would be a very good idea this morning for one week before our communion service for us all to learn together, correspond together, and I think this is a good way to really get us, get us prepared for communion next week. So let's go into verse, John chapter 6. We'll pick up at verse 47 to verse 59. It's John 6, 47 to 59. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now keep in mind there, let me pause a minute. Keep in mind there that not only were the Jews listening to this, but they were disciples, disciples of Christ that were listening to this also. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, Ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead, he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue, and he taught in Capernaum. Christ had come down from the feeding of the 5,000, went over the Sea of Galilee, went in through Capernaum, and continued on with his ministry. And when all these questions come up, you see a very doctrinal, detailed response of Christ here in this portion of John chapter 6, and he's teaching basically what it is to have communion with Christ. And I think this morning what we can learn is what it is not. We see that he that believeth on me hath everlasting life, Christ said. The love of God is eternal. It is beyond our ability to fathom, giving us his ultimate greatest gift, sending his precious son to die that we may live. So those whom God hath given the Son can never have this everlasting reward stripped away. Thank the Lord you cannot lose your salvation. 
The Lord will not strip that eternal gift away. So Christ goes on here in verse 48, and he goes through these verses, and he says, I am the bread of life. This is a very important statement because this is an opening, a very important lesson on communion and how Christ's body represents the bread from heaven is broken apart, and what does that mean? Why? Christ already is patient to condescend to the ridicule and the lack of belief from extremely venomous people, and right here the Jews already are questioning him. In no way do the number of the multitudes or their fickle belief system alter the truth of who Christ actually is. He says over and over, I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven to tell those in disbelief. And what he is doing here is this is the opening doctrinal thesis from Christ on what communion is. What does it mean to have communion with Christ? The Jews would murmur. And they say, they, they, they can murmur, and they say, this is the son of Joseph, a carpenter. This is the son of Mary. Jesus said, it is true that your fathers did eat manna. And they're questioning his earthly father. And they're questioning, basically, they're saying Moses was our father. And that's what they were saying. In essence, he says, you must have been taught the Old Testament to know that. So Christ takes them right back to Scripture, and he's building a case here. How can you know I am the true object lesson of that bread? This is the fruition of the message. How can you know that Christ is the bread of life? Because here they're going back to Moses, and they're talking about the manna. Remember how they were complaining about no water? Christ, gave, Christ himself gave them water. He gave them a wonderful beacon of light. You know what it's like, I don't know if you've ever all been out into the ocean, and there's bad, real bad weather, and then uh, you know, the, the boat comes in and you see a, a beautiful uh, beacon, the tower with the light going. That's a wonderful sight. That's a very comforting sight. Christ says, I am that beacon of light. I am new fruition. I am that bread of life. And basically... What that means is, is that when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were being delivered out of Egypt, not only was there their bread of life, not only did he give them that water, but he was that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. And he gave them everything. He knows everything. And he's the one, everywhere he led them, he led them to safety. And they still complained and murmured. And here the Jews today are still murmuring. Even, even today, as we live today, they still murmur, and they're murmuring here. Here the multitude supposes that Moses' miracle outshined that of Christ. And here Christ is the Christ. Moses was a type of Christ. He was a Messiah. He, but he didn't hold the three offices that you would have to have in order to be the Messiah, to be the true Son of God. He was not prophet, priest, and king. But they're talking about Moses, about this manna. When they speak of manna, they're referring to Moses. They take not one bit of consideration regarding the perfect nature of the miracles of Christ. Here Christ could create anything from nothing. As we move forward, we see here over and over again, Christ has many statements. Remember, in the book of John, basically how John the Beloved, and it was not written by John the Baptist, it was written by John the Beloved. The statement towards the end of John says, These words are written that ye might know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God unequivocally, that there's no question about it. The I am statements, all the I am statements in the, in, the, in the book of John connected Christ to Exodus chapter 3, where God told Moses, I am that I am, I am hath sent you, I am the God of your fathers. And when Christ made these I am statements, he was going back to God and connecting 
those offices. Here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the living water. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. What were some of the other I am statements? Anybody remember? There were several of them. <laughs> John 14, 6. The big one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the living water. I am the gate to the sheepfold. I am the bread of life. I am the door to the sheep. Lisi. I am. And he said, I am he. Remember when he says, I am he, and a whole cohort of soldiers fell over. I am, I am, I am. And now he says, I am the bread of life. And this is the opening. So between today and next Lord's Day, we have some work to do to prepare for the communion service. And the work that the Lord gives us is a wonderful blessing to encourage our hearts. Christ could save a lost soul with or without speaking. He could be present at creation and say, let there be light. He could be the perfect object lesson in Genesis 3.15 to be the one to bruise and to crush Satan's head. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, Genesis 3.15, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And this passage is a prophecy of the bread of life from heaven who will come as the second Adam. He will fix what the first Adam sinned and what he did was wrong and the Lord fixes that. This Adamic curse in our first parents it translates into the absolute, absolute undeniable need for a second Adam. Can someone read 1 John chapter 3, verse 8? We see here that this, this verse defines the humanity as being divided into the hard reprobate who are the lovers of self. And Christ comes to this earth and shows who is, the, who is the one to be followed, that we are not supposed to be following ourselves, that we are not to follow Satan, but to follow him. It's the second Adam. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Who has that? Thank you, Lacey. Look at that verse. He comes to destroy the works of the devil. The, the, the works of Satan are everywhere. There are those today, we've been talking for several weeks, there are those today that believe that Satan has been chained all the way since the first century. That, how can that be true? Look around us. Does it look like Satan's been chained and put away? And if there's some other power, he is out there working as hard as he ever had right now. We could see that in politics. We can see that in schools. We can see that in area churches. Talk about the bread of life. Do you know what the church thinks about the bread of life today? I drove by one yesterday and it says, the bread of life never goes stale. I mean, that's as far... Here he's got this big expensive sign out in front of their church where they could put some beautiful... You know which one I'm talking about. It's right there at the end of Pleasant. I can see gray. It's right there at Grandview. I'm sorry. But anyway, they got these be- two beautiful signs where they could put really good Bible verses and that's all they could come up with. The bread of life never goes stale. <laughs> all right, you know, yeah, I just don't understand. These are those, these, the, the, this verse is about the rejectors that, are, that, that reject the bread of life. The division finds, we see that this division finds immediate application in the hostility of Cain against Abel. You know, Abel had true communion with God, didn't he? Abel had an obedient sacrifice. He was in communion with God. 
and I want to keep building this up. What does it mean to be in communion with God? What does it mean for us to prepare? Lisey. Right. That's right. That's right. It's, it's, it's not just, don't want to get too far ahead, but it's not just one time out of the quarter. See, right now in our church, we do communion once every quarter. So our communion is not just predicated on, you know, just not really thinking about God till we hit communion once a quarter, and all of a sudden what that does is reify and tells us that we're some kind of, you know, homo religioso, you know, perfectionist which means homo religiosi means that we all have inside of us basically the desire to have some type of religion. Some way, somehow, there's some kind of a religion. And that's what we're born with, actually. The other division of humanity are those that God has given to his son. Thou shalt bruise his heel as a prophecy. The second Adam will come, and that suffering Christ will be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And we see this correlation. His heel will be bruised. The prophecy is pain and suffering, but the bruising of the heel is not a death blow. 1 John 3, 9, we read, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And here we see that Christ is building a case. He's talking to the Jews. He's speaking to the disciples. And something incredible happens. Christ came to save humans, not angels, animals, or any other creation. For this he took the seed of Abraham, made of the flesh and blood. He came to save humans who were flesh and blood. And who were his people? Who were his chosen people? The Jews. You want to hear something fascinating that I heard on the way to church this morning? And I never knew this. Remember how Christ... How, how Christ spoke and how through Scripture we learn that the seed of Abraham would multiply as what? The, there, was, there was two, thank you Dave, perfect, sand in the sea and the stars in the sky, right? Do you realize that in 1936 a census was taken and, and that the Jewish people went from, I believe it was the late 1800s to the, to the middle 1900s, the 20th century, Went, went all the way up from like 6 million people to 16 million people. And even after the Holocaust, where many of them, 6 million were said to have been killed, even after that, there were actually years later more Jews than before the Holocaust. The Lord has never, the census was taken. There have been more Jews, exactly what God says, even in our era, they're multiplying still. They're multiplying and multiplying. Now, are they obedient to God? Well, there's still a remnant that are, but many of them are not. But as you see how the Lord's prophecy and how when He says something, He means it. Well, here, the God, here our Lord Jesus Christ is beckoning to them and He's trying to build a case and showing them that He is the bread of life. And He's telling them, if we can go all the way back. See, they talked about the fathers. They talked about the forefathers. And many times they spoke of the deliverance out of Egypt. He says, do you remember that? Do you remember? And even when he gives them perfect detail, he could literally tell them the weather of each day if somebody would have asked him. He's got such incredible detail, he had to have been there. And they still didn't believe him. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that's something that you can't miss. Till the children of God 
of the lords of the seed of Abraham. And Christ is pouring his heart. He tells them, I am the bread of life. He says, I am, I am the one that gives eternal life. And he was telling them that that manna, the bread that's broken at communion, was given to the Israelites to show them that he loved them, that he was taking care of them, that he wanted to commune with them. And so he's asking them to commune with him. So is this communion just a one-time, a one-shot thing where you go into the priest down here at St. John's, you put in your time card, do your little wafer, and you're out of there, and like, well, I'm good spiritually for the next, you know, till the next time. Is that what it's all about? Who has, can, who can look up Hebrews chapter 2 and read verses 14 to 16? Hebrews 2, 14 to 16. Came all the way down. I'm sorry, is that, did I cut you off, Dave? Verse 16, you can stop there if that's okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's, look at that. I mean, he came, think about, we were talking Wednesday night about the, the, the last Bible verse in John 16 where Christ's last statement is, I have overcome the world. He doesn't say, I have overcome the universe. He already has the universe. The only problem in the whole universe, in the whole, you can't even begin to fathom the universe when you even think about it. The billions and endless centillions of stars and galaxies. And you take the whole universe, the only problem that God has in the whole universe are the people on this little tiny dot, three, three planets from the sun. That's the only problem that he has. And it's not really a problem, but it's our, the only sin in all of the universe is on this tiny little round thing in the span of the universe. And he comes all the way down from heaven to fix it. And all he asks is for us to believe in him and have communion. What does that mean? When you think about it like that, you can see how important it is. And don't ever even think for one minute when you go down through the annals of time there hasn't been all kinds of, of conundrum, problematic uh, differences of what Christ meant about this communion. But it's so simple. It's so simple. All he's saying is, I want communion with you. Ye, but Dave just said the word. That's a best word, one of the best words. Partakers. That we be partakers. That we don't turn our noses up at and reject him. He says, I am the bread of life. This is, he says, this is not the only I am truth claim of Christ. But the bread of life really brings all these I am statements together when it comes to communion. John 8, 12 says, Then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He that are partake, what he's saying is those that are partakers with me. Then you go up to 828, when you have lifted up the Son of Men, then shall ye know that I am He. John 10, 7, 9. I am the door to the sheep. John 10, 11, and 14. I am the good shepherd. I think that's incredible. We see that 
The, the bi- biblical writing and what the Lord is giving us here is great biblical guidance, and he's teaching us what it means to take communion. What does it mean to have communion? <clears throat> we see here, our, fi- our, our founding fathers used the Bible for guidance. And you know what our founding fathers left for us? You can name our founding fathers. And you know when, when, what we used to do when we were kids, and I've taken our kids to some of the locations, you go into the cemeteries, you know what they left for us? They left King James Bible verses and let the rocks cry out on the cemetery stones to leave a testimony for us. You go down to Mount Vernon. We visited Mount Vernon. It's all through the park there. Now they've sucked all of the Bible verses out of Mount Vernon House. They were there. There used to be a Bible right by the bed, and that was George Washington's Bible that he read before he died, and that's gone. There's no Bible verses. All you see is a lot of Greek philosophers and a lot of weird paintings and stuff. But then you go down to the cemetery. That's where you get the full effect of the Christianity of George Washington and his wife where in metal engraving right over his crypt, this is what it says, another I am statement. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? That's what it says right over our first president. You think that'll say that over Joe Biden's? You think when he dies, what do you think we'll put on his grave? He'll probably say six billion miracles are enough. That's probably what he'll say. Right. He knew not what he does. He's son or, or son of perdition. Good, good statements. The bread represents all nourishment for the life of the body. Okay? Two things that Christ deals with with communion is two ways that make us alive. Number one... His food, bread. Number two is his blood. The life is in the blood that he shed for us. What do we do at communion? We eat bread to signify the cleansing power of Christ through his crucifixion and the tearing of his flesh and body, the bread of life, and then we drink his blood. Now people think, oh, that sounds like cannibalism. Well, there are people that don't understand. Many people believe that. Here, this is symbolic of Christ being that bread that is the nourishment for the soul. It's proven perfectly by the very fact that in the front of the eyes of many people, he raised the dead. He gave them physical life and eternal spiritual life. We see that as the faithless cross-examiners continue their attempt, these Jews, to minimize Christ's truth claim, he rectifies their mistake, mistake concerning the typical manner. Your fathers ate manna and have been dead. Their bread was dead and they were dead. Yes, they surely ate manna, but misinterpreted its meaning. That was a deadness that Christ pointed out. And at communion, you, you eat the bread. That's the very first part of the communion. You, we drink his blood through, through, through the wine or whatever you have in communion. And what this means, it's not just something that you do as a ritual like in some of the other churches we see. I mean, if you study some of the communions that some churches have in different in, in some different, uh, 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 I don't know, call, I call them cults, but other people call them religions. I mean, there are, there's part of the Baptist convention that I remember. What they do for communion is they have a barbecue cookout, and they have hot dogs, and they have Coke and, uh, and hamburgers, 
and all, and that's their communion. And they make a big party out of it. And the people really think that they're being edified by it. How many of you have ever talked? I mean, there's many, some here that, I don't know, many or some that have been in the Catholic Church. Did you ever really talk to somebody you knew in the Catholic Church that really knew what communion was about? That was really going on in the communion? Does anybody know? Have you ever talked to somebody? I find it, commun- I find it absolutely fascinating to ask a Catholic about their communion. And you ask them what transubstantiation is, they don't even know what it is. A lot of them don't. They have no idea what it really goes back to and what it means. That communion basically is predicated on baptism. It falls right down into the sacraments, which the sacraments over the last several centuries have been changed many times. You know, God's Word endures forever. It never, it's, it's not to be touched. But their sacraments can be changed. And with those sacraments, they truly believe from baptism down to the sacraments, through the consecration of the elements, that they can literally re-crucify Christ's body. And that they can literally, they, that the, the vicar, they call the vicar of God, who is the Pope, which is another blasphemy because it's the Holy Spirit that's the vicar of God, he has the power to convert it. He has the power to, that's their communions. And with those communions, I see people swarming in, especially on the holidays, to get in, to get out, to outsource their, basically their, their theology and their doctrine and their worship, and they go in and they go out and they basically think that the priests have done it all for them and they're fine. And they go out and it's no problem. And basically anything outside of the temple, it could be, there's so many different religions that actually practice this with communion in different forms that they have people coming in believing, they sit down, they take communion, and they just leave, then everything's fine and it's up to them. That's what we were talking about worship last week and how Paul said God's, the, God, the presence of God cannot be confined to false idols and, and in man's temples as if he needed anything. And I think that's a very powerful, riveting statement, as if he needed anything. And so basically what we were talking about last week is when we saw the Baal worship in the Old Testament, the only time they worshipped is when they walked into the temple. They went in, they went up to Dagon, or they went to Baal, and they worshipped, they got down, and they worshipped, and they went out, and they just did their pagan thing the rest of the week. That's not being in communion with God. We are to recognize, basically, that our communion of God is something that's done daily. It's not some, uh, done at some ritual. What does that mean? What does it mean to have basically, uh, basically some kind of a communion daily with God? Well, let's take the word devotions, biblical devotions. And that's something that's wonderful to have in your house. Biblical devotions, you know, father, mother, or mother, whatever, dad's working and shit, and dad can't do it until the evening or whatever. Sitting down, opening the Bible reading it and praying and thanking the Lord every day. Praying for your family, praying for your friends, that's biblical devotions. And there was a big question that was asked at a Bible conference many years ago. When do you have your biblical devotions? And somebody says, ah, we just have it on Wednesday night. Ah, we just have it on Friday night. Some said, we just have it on Saturday night. We just have our biblical devotions. And then the pastor came back and just fried the whole congregation, and even a couple of pastors, because even they said, well, we have our devotions on like one, you know, Tuesday night and Thursday night. He goes, biblical devotions are every minute of our lives as Christians. It means we are devoted to God, and it's our desire and our heart to be closer to Him every minute. 
not just at certain times of the week in order for us to confirm that we have some kind of a, a religious connection to God. So I think that, that was a very good, st- good statement. So we see that the Jews, they believed in Moses. We see that they believed in Moses, that he was a conduit for them. And that's certainly a wonderful man to look to. But it was not Moses who administered the communion. It was not Moses who prayed and begged. It was not Moses who alone prayed and begged for it. All down through the centuries, there were prophets and pastors that have prayed and they have given communion and they have begged the Lord to, to, to save them from their sins and to bring their congregations to repentance. Matthew Henry says, so they should have looked beyond Moses to God. That's very important. And they missed this sadly. Christ says their ancestors were dead and if they considered Moses their Messiah and Moses surely he was a messenger of God, he was dead too and could never resurrect himself from the dead. And that's the difference between world leaders and Christ. We talked about that again Wednesday night. We talked about how Christ is the only one that could heal, to resurrect himself from the dead. We had many quotes from world leaders. And there are so many world leaders that people worship as deities. They bow down and they worship them. How can you worship something that can't raise themselves from the dead? Communion. They were dependent upon the regular table scraps from the flesh pots. Christ was giving them the bread from heaven. We're to have faith, 1 Corinthians 2.5, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. That's a very powerful verse. Eating of, the, eating of his flesh meant having faith in the prophecy that Christ would die on the cross and the tearing of his flesh, being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities would give eternal life. And they found this very difficult. We, we can find faith very difficult. You know, there we have a saving faith. There's a common faith we have out there, but we all have faith. We really do. We, every day you have faith. That we just getting out on I-95 in your car, that's a common faith, believing you're going to come off of 95 without being a statistic. Flying in an airplane, you don't know who the pilot is. You don't have no idea who the co-pilot is. You go up there and you walk up into the Southwest Airlines and go into the cockpit and say, okay, I'm going to see your college degree. I'd like to see your bank statement. I want to see, uh, uh, Mr. Pilot, have you had a drug test lately? Do we ever do that? No, you don't. You're so worried about what the TSA or the whatever just puts you through, you're just glad to be in the chair without missing your flight. And then you sit down, and all of a sudden, this great big massive thing, a bucket of bolts, gets off the ground 30,000 feet in the air. You trust that pilot, don't you? You don't even know who he is. You have no idea where he's from. Going for surgery. Do you have a whole panel of people evaluate your surgeons? Oh, where'd he graduate from college? You know, what, what kind of instrumentation does he use? I want to check all your surgeries for the last 10 years and see if anybody died from you working on them. We ever do that? Nope. You go in because you can't wait to get out. You lay down there and let it go. That's faith. <laughs> That's a common faith. You don't know who he is. We do it every day. Guy works on your car. You don't know what he's doing underneath there. A lot of them don't do anything. We give you a nice big bill, and then the car breaks down a week later. You know, that takes faith. That's a lot of money you put in that car, isn't it? I've lost a lot of faith in them. I do a lot of it myself now, but you you can't do everything. The Jews quarreled, and they failed to understand the spiritual significance of the illustrations of Christ. Every veiled saying or physical illustration was misunderstood by the mix, and it still is today. 
You know, there was a great big fight about communion between, there was a big, big difference. And I love studying it because I've learned a lot from it. But there was a big disagreement between John Calvin and Martin Luther over the corporeal presence of Christ's body in communion. Luther believed that his body was still present. For a long time he believed that. Calvin said no. Calvin said no. In his humanity, he could not be everywhere at once. So you couldn't sit down at communion at the communion table and have Christ's body be present in its human state for everybody to take part of it everywhere at once. But then they found out that Luther was talking at more of a spiritual level. He didn't mean his actual physical body, and that was a real debate for a long time. You can read about it. Calvin believed it was only symbolic that he could only be at one place at one time in his humanity where the Catholic Church today believes in every church they can still take his physical body, which would be in his humanity, cut it up, and take part in it. That's voodoo. That's not even true at all. Even they were having problems. There's been all kinds of discrepancies over communion. And I think we need to get away from that. I think what we should do is look at the Word. And what does it mean to be in communion? We, you know, it's like eschatology. I have so many people, you know, I've had so many people try to pin me down and ask me about eschatology. I won't talk about it. I'm not wasting my time sitting there getting on a calculator and adding up dates and times and all this stuff in order to figure out when Christ is coming back. Nobody knows. I'm sick of hearing about it. I'm sick and tired of the church being divided over people killing each other over revelations. No way we can fully understand what Revelation says perfectly. There are a lot of places in the Bible we can't understand, but we know that Christ is coming back a second time. And there's so much division over that. But there's a big division over communion. And I think what we need to do is we need to pull away from all the doctrinal you know, mud wrestling and we need to start looking at what Christ is really saying on a personal level. Dave read it. He's saying he wants us to be partakers with him. And I think that the lesson here is perfect in what Christ is saying because of what winds up actually happening. We have a few minutes. Here the Jews quarreled. The blood. Here we talked about the bread. I could talk about the bread for weeks, but the blood is for the cleansing of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. We're drinking that to represent and to remember. This do in remembrance of me. This doesn't say this do in remembrance of the church or of, of the congregation or of some of the Pope. It says of me. And that personal pronoun there is for Christ. We're supposed to be remembering him. The blood is for the cleansing of sins. Here we see that basically we've learned, we see transfusions, Blood removes infections, bacteria. Jews are still stuck on the physical nature of this illustration. Going all the way back to the Mosaic Law that prohibited the drinking of blood or eating the flesh with the blood. We're not supposed to drink an absolute blood from a human being. That's why we drink the you know, non-alcoholic wine here. And we drink that grape juice, non-alcoholic wine. Not to have any alcohol here. I think that's a very good thing. And we need to remember that it is symbolic and we're not supposed to make it a work that if we're actually eating the very body of Christ that makes me something that I'm not I'm saved because I'm justified by cannibalism we see that the quartering of animals and sacrificing them so their blood would gush over the altars would be perpetual and appointed by God for the offering up of the thanksgiving for the sins but when did he ever have them drinking the blood they never drank the blood of the animals. 
That was actually a, court, a capital punishment. And it was continual. In Job 1.5 we read, And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of all of his children, of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this did Job continually. That was meditation. That was prayer. This is how Job would offer up sacrifices to God and he did it exactly the way that the Lord said to do it. This was continued because the sacrificing animals was not the ultimate or end of all sacrifices. And that's why so many animals were slaughtered. They, not, you, they could never take one animal and say, it's finished. You could never do that. That work is finished. That work was only finished and we stopped sacrificing animals because Christ said it is finished. That work is finished. You know that there are still many, many churches. Right now, the Sumerians still have, which they only worship the Pentateuch, the first five books, they still have sacrifices of animals. And we see down in Haiti, they're still sacrificing animals in, in their voodoo worship. It's really, really, it's really serious. His, Christ's impending death on the cross and the, his, the blood that, that shed out on that cross is for our remission of sins. His impending death on the cross was the final sacrifice. John 17, 4 says, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And he finished it by shedding his blood. Paul says in Romans 3, 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. The eating of Christ's flesh, the drinking of his blood, is Christ making it clear that he would die. The sacrifices of animals would be abolished, and the ordinance of communion is instituted to symbolize Christ being the ultimate sacrifice. Why? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Who would like to have the blessing of reading that verse? And this is a blessing. They all are. Thank you, Faith. That's wonderful. Thank you. All of us together as family here in this congregation can rejoice that Christ sat down on the right hand of the Father and He's preparing a place for us. John 14, let your heart not be troubled. For where I am, you will be also. In my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. He would never lie. Christ paid it all with the cleansing power of His blood. Here's a few verses. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 to 24. Who could read those? You get a little more verses to read here. This brings it together. Scripture must prevail always. Hebrews 9, verses 19 to 24. Who could read that? Go ahead. Anybody has it? Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9 19 to 24. Thank you.
Perfect. Thank you, Jenny. And what that means, there was only one blood that was sufficient. And that was the blood of Christ, not the blood of anyone else or any bull or goat. Well, in closing, this might take a couple minutes. In, in closing, what was the reaction? What was the reaction? The Jews and the disciples all gathered around in the hands around Christ and they all prayed and said, Thank you, Lord. We love the communion. We want to have communion right here. Can we do it right here with you? Is that what happened? The Jews tiptoed back to Caiaphas and Annas and eventually said, this guy's got to go. And out of 120 disciples, I've heard different numbers, but about 120 disciples got up and left and said, these are two hard sayings. How can we hear it? And I believe what Christ is teaching us about communion through what happened, the events, and what came out of his mouth is, ye are partakers. And he turns around to the twelve and he says to them, are you going to go too? And there was a little remnant that said, it just pierces your heart. Saddest moment, one of the saddest moments in Scripture. And Peter says, where are we going to go for eternal life other than you, Lord? And he's telling us, all these people left me. Are you going to come to church and have communion and be partakers and love me because I loved you? Are you? Or are you just going to take it lightly and act like it's not important or, or, or take it and pervert it? And I want to read you a couple things here. And I'm going to have one closing statement. But Matthew 24, 22, here we see in closing, his disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Well, he made it, he made it very clear how to understand it. Christ said many would not believe See what he is saying here? You better be properly prepared when you come into communion with me it does not, because it does not take much to be swept away. Matthew twenty four twenty two says, And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. That if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you this before. He said, I've told you this. I've told you this. I've said it over and over again. Paul says the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. We can see that in America. This country's... De- Two things that God hates the most are the two things you can be pursued as hate crimes. The abortion of babies and sodomy. And now if you're against them in this country, you can be charged for hate crimes. They're the two first things that God instituted at creation that we were supposed to stay away from. Don't murder the babies. Do not murder the babies and do not... Do not have home marriage. The Lord said, For this cause shall a man and woman leave their mother and father that the two may become one flesh and they come together and they can be fruitful and multiply falling away. That's two main ingredients of our falling away here. We wonder why we're in such bad shape. 
Second, Second Thessalonians 2, 3 says, says, For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he has God, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Paul said the same thing Christ said. I've told you these things over and over and over again. And I can tell you one of the right ways the people have elevated themselves above God is perverting communion and taking it and doing it unworthily. And that means doing it and, blasph- and, and, and blaspheming it. Now I want to say this about communion. Now I know down through the ages in this church, I think there's been a very, very high priority put on communion. And I think that's been very good. At Presbytery, normally at communion, that's one of the first opening exercises we have for the day. When we have communion at Presbytery, normally the pastors up there give you a minute to pray. Think about that. I want you to think about that real hard, that, they, that the pastor will give you a minute to pray and think about that. That means you don't have to go through weeks and weeks of rituals in order to prepare yourself and go to some priests and confess your sins. You wouldn't have time to do that up at the presbytery meeting. You don't have to wait to go down the street and sit at confessional and wait in line and then give them a bunch of money to confess your sins to another man that really needs to confess them himself. What that means is it doesn't take much. The Lord wants you to be a partaker. And I think too many people, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think many times a, bit, a lot of people make too many excuses to not take communion. There is never going to be a time when you walk into church that you're not having some kind of a problem with somebody. There's never going to be a time in church when you're going to come in and say that you perfectly have never sinned and you're never going to sin anymore. What God, what Christ wants to, a God who is Christ, Christ who is God wants to see is for you to have a contrite heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh Lord, thou will not despise. He wants to see a humble and contrite heart. You come in and say to yourself, I can't have communion this morning because I'm mad at this person. Well, I remember Pastor Keith here. He would say, listen, before we start, pray and ask the Lord to take that away. It doesn't mean it's going to go away like that, but if it's on your heart to go away, take communion. Don't take all these excuses to, to, to not take communion. I, I personally err on the side of doing everything you can to prepare to take that communion. I think it's important. But if you're living in sin and you don't want to stop it and you hate somebody and you really want violence against them and you don't even want to, don't take it. Don't ever, don't, 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 don't commit the, the um, what's it called? The uh, Manducio, I think, indignorum. That's taking communion as damnation unto yourself and having absolutely no desire in your heart to make that reconcile. If you have reconciliation in your heart, sit there and ask the Lord for it and take communion. But if you're saying, oh, forget it, I'm going in there and I'm, you know, be careful with that. Nobody's perfect, but I think we should all be very, very careful. But I think we should err on trying to take communion, be partakers in communion with Christ. And that should only be a tiny, tiny little part of our communion with God. Because the rest of the week, we should be having communion with God everywhere we go. With our prayer, our Bible reading, witnessing. And I, I, that's my opinion. That's what I think. I think that's important. And I really believe that goes into what Christ is trying to say here. Because he wanted those disciples to stay with him. He knew they weren't perfect. He said, I have mercy because I know that you're all created from dust in the book of Psalms. 
I have mercy on you. I remember that you are dust. And he knows our weaknesses. And it's easy for us to beat up on ourselves. Well, I believe instead of tearing each other down, I think we need to build each other up. And if we do that, I think the Lord will love that and bless that. So communion is next uh, Sunday. I just prepare for it. And I think it'll be a great blessing. Let's finish with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I thank thee for John 6. Lord, that thou wouldst take the time, Lord, to dictate these words and to, in, to inspire John the Beloved to write them. Teach us that it's a wonderful blessing to commune with thee and be partakers and to take communion obediently and to make sure we know that it's symbolic of the love that Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, that thou hast for us. I pray that our hearts will be prepared next week, that we would love being taken the time this week to pray for others, to pray for ourselves, to repent of our sins, and to remember that, Lord, thou hast asked us, Lord, to remember thy law, that we, we should repent of our sins that we have broken, that we have broken in thy law, and prepare our hearts and come together next week in communion. We thank thee for that fellowship. Thank thee the Pastor Britton and Miss Vicky are here with us this morning, and thank thee so much for bringing them safely. Give us a good day of worship and fellowship, and I pray that we'll leave here to be able to say that it's been wonderful to be in thy house. For tonight we pray. Amen.